welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this weekend, we are talking a little bit about PAX. And uh, that's because I'm here at PAX East. <laughs> Rob, it feels weird. Like, I'm here in Boston and you're not. This is weird. I don't know. I don't know about this. Oh, I, I really don't know about it. Um, <laughs> I've never missed a PAX East. I've oh, lived shit. out there as long as PAX East has been a thing. Uh, it was one of the, and actually, like, PAX East sort of gave me my entire uh, friend circle in Boston in a lot sure. of ways, right? Like, yeah. outside of, like, professional games writing, like, all the friends I made in Boston basically came from acquaintances I made through PAX. And that's why, you know, I just, I can't ever fully be too cynical or judgy about cons. Yeah. Uh, and even even PAX, like, you know, there are there are a lot of moments where... You know, the conversation around some of the cons is, uh, you know, a little negative. Oh, for sure. But I also can't forget just, like, how much it's meant to me to make these connections at a, at a place like PAX. Yeah. I mean, it's it's something, with PAX especially, I've had a little bit of a roller coaster with it because I, too, I think I was here for the first PAX East. I was here for the first, like, three, maybe? And then I moved, or maybe it was the first two and then I moved. I don't remember the exact timing of it all. But I, I was here when it was at Heinz. And uh, that, that was for maybe a year or two. And then they were like, it oh, yeah, we need more year, room. Yeah. <laughs> I used to take my students to PAX. I, I've been teaching game design uh, for a while now. And I used to teach at Northeastern University. And I, I would always take my students to PAX. And it was always like this really awesome and positive experience even though i would take them to a lot of the panels that were like career oriented and a lot of that was like i don't know man be better at shit like that's <laughs> that's how a lot of the advice came down sometimes and it wasn't always the best but sometimes it was very useful for them and very helpful those, some of those <laughs> earlier panels especially uh could yeah, be a little, a little bit rough. Like, uh, how do yeah. you how do you get a job in x i don't know send in your resume and keep at it and it was like cool all right excellent yep. Good advice. Yeah. Uh, I think the first PAX was fully 50% how to break into games journalism sure. uh, panels. Sure. Yep. <laughs> um, um, and, which, and like, God, talk about an abandon all hope ye who enter here. Oh, uh, so for I, Although sure. I really can't say that this week of all weeks. Like, that's kind of me being disingenuous. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's weird that I'm here in Boston, but what's weird in a great and wonderful way is that we work together now for real. Not just on this podcast, but in life. In real life. <laughs> yeah, finally. <laughs> I know, it's, it's um, taken us a damn long time, but here it is. Yeah, we were, we were kind of ships passing in the night at GameShark. Uh, I yes. think my, my time there was starting as yours was winding down. Um, yeah. And then you went off to, uh, you know, the reviews side of Polygon. And I did a little features yeah. work over there. But yeah, we never never got a chance to, to work together. It's, it's, it's one of those weird situations where... Um, I don't know. It's it, it's always funny to have a friend and like close professional acquaintance that you've like been circling around for years, but you've yeah. never actually like done the thing that you guys share above all others, like together, <laughs> totally. right? Like, yeah, it's, we never actually work together at all. Um, yeah, so I'm actually recording this from from the vice office. I, I had to kill a couple people to get yeah. this conference room. Oh, um, that's how thought, it works. You have to I make tributes. The stories were exaggerated. No, like no. So this is great. Like so, Vice is so far like first impressions. Like Vice seems like an awesome company and everything, but the Sturm und Drang around like shared <laughs> office resources is truly amazing. Like even if you've it's had an rough. office job where like this stuff is normal, like this is Vice 
like sort of seems like this is my stapler to the nth degree. Oh yeah. Oh, it's rough. We had a chair situation last week where I had my chair stolen one too many damn times. And I was like, you know what? I'm a managing editor. I am a higher up, at least at my little vertical here. And I I am mad that my chair keeps getting stolen. And I went to office ops and I got a new chair and I made a cool sign. Everybody uh, at the uh, New York Waypoint, uh, you know, HQ, we all made signs for our chairs so that people would stop stealing them. Have not gotten it stolen yet, but... I'm also out of the office today, so I can't tell you. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's probably it may have gotten stolen. It's it's, it's bananas. Like not to complain. I I genuinely like working for Vice. This is my favorite job I've had in my life, especially since the ACLU. Um, and like, <laughs> it's just a little bit hilarious because the the company went from something like I don't know 400 people to like 1,200 in like two years or three years. It's some ridiculous thing. So space has been an issue for sure and it's and it's just kind of a really funny you know it's just like oh, yeah. this really hilarious situation sometimes i find it just utterly hysterical because everyone's happy in yeah. their jobs everyone's doing stuff they're passionate about but yeah. there's just this one thing that yeah. is making people like murderous across the company yep. um yep. it's it, it's it's really something but i have a question for you danielle uh, and yeah. it's about cons yeah. it's about pax in particular oh yeah you know pax was originally um it was sort of the most democratic con, right? It was the con for people who weren't professionals. It was a con yes. for fans, one fans. of the first of its kind. Yeah. And when it was created, it was really kind of important because there were so many like professionals only cons, right? There were a lot of like, pro, like GDCs, you know, basically E3s, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was stuff for for marketing types, for for press, for working professionals. But the thing it wasn't for was the fans who were most like excited by this stuff. Uh, but I feel like that's kind of changed. That actually now increasingly things are just games coverage, game media is more fan oriented in general. Um, you know, especially with the rise of YouTube and Twitch personalities, like a lot of marketing now is direct to like fan influencers and yeah. such. So I feel like the landscape is really tilted towards uh, democratizing itself uh, for, for better and for worse. But I'm curious, like, does that leave PAX in a different place? And does the vibe feel like it's changing to you at all? Honestly, it feels like it's it's changed a little bit in in a few ways. Um, but one thing, I, I don't worry too, too much about it not being a very fan-driven experience and a very sort of, so, at least somewhat democratized experience because it's just so goddamn big that it can... It can basically have panels for everyone uh, or, or programming for everyone. And you could never even possibly think about doing all of the things there are to do there. So I don't worry too, too much about it being like oh, too much of a members only kind of deal. Like, I don't I don't think that will happen anytime soon unless people start, you know, dropping out and not going to PAX. Uh, but there's always like tens of thousands of people there who are very, very excited about all the things going on. So I mean, that's that's certainly still the vibe here, uh, which is, you know, really good in some ways and, and, and frustrating in other ways, just in terms of sheer human traffic on the show floor and that sort of thing can be it can be a little exhausting. That's that's my only negative about these kinds of cons anymore. I, you know, there were there was some weirdness at PAX in the past there with the whole Dick Wolves thing. And I won't go on and on about that. But like there have been times where this conference itself, I think 
because of its size and how quickly it grew from being a really tiny fan thing into a really giant fan thing uh, that was professionalized, at least to some degree, you know, in terms of how it was run and management. Uh, that happened real fast and maybe with some maturity issues on <laughs> one side or the other, potentially. Um, but it, it's honestly like a very warm and friendly place to be, I think, now. It's just, holy shit, does it get exhausting uh, to be on a show floor, even I think for everyone, not not even just if you're somebody who's excited about it or somebody who's who's done this uh, a million times. Like it's just, it's like being in Walt Disney World on the busiest day of the year. Like there's just kind of lines everywhere. There's a lot of human traffic going on. It's just, it's, it's something you gotta prepare for mentally and physically. Let's just say that. So I I am curious. Have you had a chance to walk the floor at all yet? Not yet. I will be there shortly. Uh, I'll be I'll be speaking a couple of times at this good old PAX here. I've not been on the floor yet of this convention just yet. Yeah, but, I'm I'm curious what the uh you know what 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 are the things you're most looking what like aside from the panels that you're going to be doing yourself. What what are some of the big things that you are uh, you're there to see uh, the the things that you're you're hyped to catch? Oh, for sure. I, my biggest thing, pretty much always, is the weird little things that you see at, you know, the indie mega booth and, and the sort of adjacent indie things that now there's like an indie mega booth and then there's like a visual novel reading room. I'm not even sure if that's part of the indie mega booth. It might be. It's it's just exponentially grown over the years, the indie mega booth. So I'm always just honestly thrilled to go there and just look at all the weird stuff. I, I get so happy. I get so excited. And this is the kind of thing where you know, the, the creators are actually there and they're actually excited to talk to you and they don't necessarily have PR handlers. So it's like, oh, anything you want to know about this game, about making it, about, you know, what inspired it, about how they figured out this mechanic, how they tested this, like all the, that fun, crunchy stuff that I really, really enjoy. That tends to be, you know, folks are, are so down to chat about it and so down to kind of show off their their creative wares. Um, so that's probably where I'm going to head uh, as soon as I get on the show floor, just to just to take a walk, just to see what it's like, just to see the random kind of things going on. And I also like going to the the sort of somewhat smaller publishers, too. Like, I'm going to go I'm going to go see what Devolver has. I'm going to go see what Evolve has, you know, like the folks who are uh, publishing games that are maybe not the triple A, you know, first party games, but, you know, have a budget, <laughs> have something more of a budget than the, the super, super indies. So I've, I've got quite a few stops on my on my map kind of marked i've got waypoints on my map rob you like that one yeah i, I yes i i like it danielle it's good <laughs> definitely definitely appreciate it i hope there's i hope there's more humor like that on the I, podcast oh uh, you're right but yeah i mean i i've always enjoyed going to the uh, smaller publishers myself like they, they actually are there to talk um, yeah. For the for the most part, which is night and day different from anything AAA. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where those those booths are basically like interactive display cases, right? Yeah. Like you know, you just move the bodies through, and if there's anyone there, they're they're usually not there to talk, not not available for for much of a conversation. Uh, and sometimes those you know, you, you discover weird gems, um, you know, yeah. down there like. The indie, the tr wandering through the indie mega booth, the the indie alleys, uh, as it were. <laughs> it's um, there's always a lot of cool stuff to see there. But also, I've always been sort of impressed by um, <laughs> impressed maybe isn't the right word, but there are so many games that publishers are just kind of like 
throwing out there and sure. putting nothing behind. Like I remember um, uh, Call of uh, Call of Juarez Gunslinger. Oh yeah, uh, was I think it was like the Ubi booth or something like that, and they did not give a shit about that game. <laughs> like it was just sitting there on on one little uh, on one little like demo three sixty or something like that. <laughs> Nobody was pushing it on anyone. Nobody talked about it. Like, you just walk up and play it. Um, and it turned out to be, like, one of their best shooters in, in ages. It's a really it was, fun it game. It's a terrific little yeah. game. Um, and it's, I think sometimes it packs. It really drives home. So, like, a lot of the indies are just hungry for any kind of coverage, and they're, they're always keen to talk about their game. What's striking at at a show like PAX, and you can sometimes see it, is how many publishers have already kind of written off a game. Like, at some point, somebody has had the conversation. Um, you know, marketing's already made the call that it's just not worth even trying, oh, and they're done. And that always just feels so utterly terrible. Yeah. Because um, it's... That was, that was a case of a game that I think deserved a lot better than it got, but Ubisoft just seemed, like, obligated to publish it and would rather not have... Yeah, that's always that's always a little sad. And I guess that ties into the sort of fatigue, right? Of like, well, I can only I only have the like stamina as a human being to to be here for X many hours to look at X many games and like what gets my attention and what doesn't. Like even even just as a person, <laughs> it's it's like a, a, a an embarrassment of riches on one end, but some things are inevitably going to be ignored on on the other end. And I mean, that goes triply so for publishers who have, you know, they have skin in the game. They have money on the line. They have their, their all that money stuff. The thing, the terms that they you use about money, right? Um, so it can be a little, it can be a little depressing. If you see, like, some somebody who, like, poured their heart and soul into their little game and they're just, like, sitting there and nobody's playing their game and, like, somebody in the booth next to them is, has, like, a line at the door kind of thing. Oh, that's, oh, that, that is, brutal. that's a visual God, that you, oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but I also try to, oh man. Yeah. There's definitely some sad cases. Like I had a mini game collection pushed into my hand by this German publisher. Oh yeah. Um, that was just, it was the saddest little booth <laughs> and their games just didn't look, their, their, their games looked, really kind of crummy yeah. but it was just like oh you flew all this way you came all this way yeah. and you're sort of sitting there at the edge of the indie mega booth off to the side and in kind of the uh, small publisher ghetto uh, as it were yeah. and it's just yeah that that stuff can be utterly crushing on the other hand though like how many times have you also been sort of like you made the mistake of not looking engaged around the indie mega booth and you get <laughs> snagged Oh, yeah. And you get pulled into something that you just, like, utterly despise. Yep. Oh, yep. That's totally happened to me. I mean, I've been to, like, oof. Not even PAX specifically, but at my earliest E3s, I would, I would go with GameShark. And, like, some of the games that I saw <laughs> and played, like, it was, it was grim sometimes. You know, I won't, I won't name names. Because it's not, it's not like they were shitty people or something, but like, holy fuck, the amount of Wii fitness games that I played at E3 2009. Like, it's, you know, sometimes, yeah. man, sometimes you draw that straw and you just, you gotta, you gotta do it. You gotta look at the thing and you gotta do the thing. 
Um, but on the other side, I have been very pleasantly surprised at times by things that I've played that I was just like, I'm just walking around. I'm just looking at the things. And then, oh, shit, this is really cool. This looks amazing. So we... I feel like you get the guts and the glory. You get you get it all when you go to PAX, basically. Yeah, you you definitely do, and it, it is still one of the best places to uh, to catch a whole lot of uh, big indies, as it were. Um, yeah, and it, it's it's super valuable for that. It's fun to see. It's also really really fun to see. How do I say this? Something like an asshole. I, I, Okay, you and I... You can fix it in post. Yeah, right, we'll fix it in post. No, I don't mean to sound like an asshole, but it's, like, it's nice to... It's it's nice in the same way that it's nice to go to a GameStop and, like, just hang out with, like, normal people who play games <laughs> who aren't, you know, games press, basically. Like, it's it's also nice to see fans who enjoy these things and are having a good time and, like, who are happy. Like, one thing I've always loved about PAX is how many families are here. You know, like, mm-hmm. like you know, people and their kids, and their kids are excited, and the parents are excited, and, like, you know, it's just, like, a nice thing to see. Like, okay, you, you love a thing. You have a passion for your hobby. Like, I, it's, it's happy to see that. It's happy to, like, or it makes me happy to see people who are, like, really enjoying themselves and having a nice time, and nobody's being shitty. I mean, because at least in the last few years, I've, I've people have been behaving very nicely around me, so that, that's good. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think uh, I think on that note, we we you know I'll have more to say about PAX uh, shortly, I'm sure, and you'll you'll hear all about it. Uh, but I think I think Rob, it's okay to do a, a shorty today, and in the in the, yeah, in, the so. in the interest of shorties, why don't we go right into our mailbox, our weekend correspondence? So our very first letter comes from Chris in Kent, UK. Uh, Chris says, "Hello, DNR. Do not read." Yeah, DNR. I like that. I've been enjoying the recent discussions on the struggles of analysis paralysis and deciding what best to play at any one point. I was particularly interested in a recent letter uh, sent in about giving ourselves a certain amount of time on side quests in an RPG before moving back onto the main storyline. This immediately made me appreciate an aspect of The Witcher 3 that I've only really started to notice now that the number of quests I'm able to discover appears to be opening up. I'm only around level 5, a couple of hours into Velen, and I've collected a bunch of quests to complete, but I feel completely at ease with knowing where I might want to go or what quests to tackle in an otherwise non-linear open world thanks to the suggested level character uh, the game gives each quest. This whittles down 15 potential quests of interest to just 3 for me to safely investigate, while at the same time grounding Geralt's current place uh, within a world that, that physically remains constant yet evolves as plot quests and problems are discovered long before being able to actually do anything about them. Do you feel this approach to world building is the answer to making open world games more compelling than, say, GTA's old approach to block off sections of the world in place of identikit missions? Uh, Thanks, Kent. uh, Sorry, Chris from Kent, UK. Well, Chris, I, I would tell you that The Witcher 3 does this really, really well, and I'll also tell you that Zelda Breath of the Wild, the other the game I'm obsessively playing right now, also does this really, really well. Uh, but instead of, of gating things, not gating, but sort of suggesting a level uh, the way that Witcher does, which I do think is a, a very, very good and smart uh, decision, basically you can go anywhere. 
But if you're not very strong or if you don't have, you know, if, if you haven't gotten super into the cooking and you don't have really the right foods for an area, because, for example, you might be too cold or too hot in certain areas and you need sort of special equipment to survive, or if you have, like, not enough stamina, you'll, you'll kind of know what areas are, you know, nothing's off limits, but you'll know what's, what's maybe a little above your pay grade um, <laughs> kind of right away. But the game doesn't artificially block you off from that. It's like, no, you know what? If you want to go towards where the the end game probably is, you have at it, my friend. You're probably gonna die, but go for it. Uh, and I and I sort of like that the way the way that both The Witcher and Zelda does this. It's respecting player choice. It's really saying like, no, go for it. You know, if you want to, go for it. But it's giving you the information you need to uh, you know to go in prepared, basically. Yeah, I, I think. The one thing I'll say about The Witcher is that, well, I don't know. I guess Chris is just playing The Witcher so differently than I am, I guess, is the thing, right? Like, <laughs> So what, what Chris is singling out is actually something that like kind of starts to fail for me because I'm not looking at it as a menu of like quests, like level appropriate quests that I can go and take on. I'm looking at it as a long checklist. Mm. that I need to get through before I'm done with The Witcher, which is why I'm still <laughs> playing The Witcher, just two short years later. Yeah. It's a good game. It's real good. But, <laughs> but one of the reasons it has taken me for uh, ages is because I keep all these quests on the books, and then I'm like, well, I need to, I need to clear some of these off my schedule. So <laughs> I, I will end up having <laughs> sessions where I'm just going around from place to place just whooping on really weak monsters yeah right? which sometimes feels thematically awesome right like yeah. oh Geralt just rolled up on these um oh, what are those little crappy little amphibia men uh, oh guys? yeah uh, they're like oh what's the name drowners drowners, drowners yeah yep. yeah sometimes like I come across those and they're pretty low level and they're like that and then the next thing you know, like I hit four buttons and for like a minute or two, it's basically God of War, right? Yep. Like it's no longer The Witcher 3. It's just like shit is exploding around <laughs> Geralt um, and then it's over. It's good. It's good feeling, but uh, it's, it's interesting because like I think it is meant to work the way Chris is playing it. I think it is meant to be like, okay, hey, like here's where you're at in the game. Here's what's good for you to do. And if you handle it that way, then the game is always serving you up something that's going to be like appropriately challenging or compelling. And you can use that to dial in the experience you want. So way to go, Chris. You're, I think, using as intended. But the problem is in the hands of someone maybe less well-adjusted, <laughs> that, that approach is maybe a disaster. Um, yeah. I, yeah. But, but I... <laughs> I do think that it, it does sort of help that a lot of open world games, yeah, they have the explicit gating uh, where stuff is just mm. randomly inaccessible and you can't get in there until you've hit the appropriate point. Uh, or the other the other thing that crops up is everything is accessible from minute one, at which point none of it really feels special or interesting, right? Like, it's just like, that's the Assassin's Creed model. It's like, well, you've got a chase over here and a chase over there, and here you can track down, you know, <laughs> a sea shanty or something like that. But, like, <laughs> yeah. there's... But because everything just sort of feels like it's lying there for you, it doesn't feel like there's anything to earn or achieve in those worlds. Whereas The Witcher, 
you know, there's this one trail I stumbled across in the middle of the night on my way to a different place. And I, it was way, way out of my comfort level, like way too high level. And yeah. uh, I just had to run like hell through the zone uh, to escape it. And I, <laughs> I barely did. Like I was basically hiding in a swamp uh, at one point waiting for a monster to <laughs> leave. But um, so, yeah, that's definitely that's definitely an aspect of, of The Witcher, that that world feels uh, alive and vibrant and special in a way because of the way this, uh, these quests are dealt out and the way they're identified. Whereas in a lot of other open world games, it's just here are your eight rote activities that you'll do in different forms throughout the game. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. But yeah, I, I think I might need a Switch, Danielle. I think you do because Zelda is so good. Well, you know what? I'm playing on the Wii U, so. Oh, really? You know, you don't need a mm. Switch. You can totally play on a Wii U. I'm having a great time. It looks pretty much the same, to be honest with you. Like, I'm sure, I am sure Digital Foundry has done a, a breakdown of, of how things are not exactly the same, but I don't know. I'm, I'm playing it next to Patricia, who's playing it on the Switch, and it's, it kind of looks like the same thing, so... I'm I'm in love with this game, Rob. I'm I'm in love with it. It's so good. <laughs> I think you might like it. Right, so, so our next email uh, comes from Ryan, and Ryan writes, "Hey, weekend. When I was a teen, I lost my mother to cancer, and ever since then, I've been bothered with the way that media, specifically games, handle death narratively. More often than not, death and its effects on a character are short-lived." Often it's used as a tool to bring the characters to a sudden burst of emotion, which is then quickly discarded upon the dead character's revival. This is why I think I'm so drawn to Final Fantasy X. Almost everything in that game is about the inevitability of death and how people are affected by it. From moment one, everyone in the main crew, save Titus, knows that their quest ultimately ends with Yuna's death, and that fact seeps into the tone of the game. None of the characters want to talk about it, and they all march forward trying to make their last precious moments with her as happy as they can be. But that grim awkwardness remains. This also puts Titus in the role of a child who is kept away from the truth. He gleefully romps forward, always making plans for a future that will never come. This innocence punctuates the lingering shadow over everyone's heads, introducing guilt into the equation and resentment towards his optimism. This tone also seeps into the world itself. Death via kaiju is a constant looming threat that can strike any time. Blitzball exists primarily as a distraction from this, and monsters only exist in the game as souls that didn't get properly passed on. An enemy's death animation reflects every time you kill a monster. The, the death kaiju itself can only be quelled for a few decades at a time, always inevitably coming back. It can be argued how well this game keeps this up as it comes to an end, but to me it was that looming tone and how each character reacted to the inevitability of their friends' deaths, as well as their own experience with others dying, that really stuck with me. Thanks for the great podcast. I can't get enough of your insightful thought on games. I'd love to hear your thoughts on FF10 and any other games that treat death in a thoughtful way. Whew. I mean... So... Yeah. My first reaction is uh, maybe I needed to get over my aversion to Titus and my frustration <laughs> with his performance as a blitzball player. Yeah. Because um, I think as we've discussed on the show, well, look, I will st- look. This is what I will stand by. Hating Titus because of that <laughs> god awful voice acting was a rational response at the time, and I think creates a pretty massive headwind 
for someone trying to get into that game. Like, I could see there were some cool things happening in that world, but my God, every time that fucking guy opened his mouth, I was just like, well, time to strangle this jerk. And yep. I started to dislike Yuna because she seemed to tolerate it and find it charming, which, hey, she was, you know, scripturally obligated to do. But I was right. like, how can you be amused by this tool? Like, this guy sucks. This guy's also, a dork. He's, yeah. he's also a bad blitzball player. Like, Ugh. let's get real. He's a Ugh. real bad blitzball player. Wasn't he supposed to be a professional? Yeah, th- I mean, this is the thing. This is the thing. The, the game establishes that Titus is, like, the best. He is the LeBron James of, of, of Blitzball. Of Blitzball. Right? He, is, he is the Messi of, of Blitzball. He gets to the alternate world. The, the, I forget if it's in the if it's in the distant future. He gets to the future. Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe he's an early Blitzball player, so it's like having Newt Rockney compete in, like, the modern NFL or something oh, like that. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But he shows up in the future, and immediately he just the shit player on his team like he is getting he is getting like intercepted and like dunked on by like everyone so i had some real problems with titus but i've i've heard stuff like what ryan is saying here i've heard this from other people that actually like ff10 is a really like moving meditation on death and Mm. religion and I want to. <laughs> I wish I'd played that game. I wish I. I wish I'd yeah. accessed it. I just couldn't. I want to believe. I I've played about ten minutes of any Final Fantasy at this point in my life. Um, it's not for a dislike of JRPGs. Like I got super into um some of the, God, not Persona, but the like, Persona's cousin series. Ugh. Um, oh, um... Shin Megami Tensei. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've gotten totally into a couple of those games on the DS, or 3DS, rather, and, like, you know, I I can enjoy a good JRPG for sure. I've just never been... I don't know. I've just never been super enticed by the sort of, uh, like, bombastic overtures of, of Final Fantasy games. Like, I, I was definitely amused watching a lot of Final Fantasy XV uh, because it's like a boy band goes across America and that that itself, you know, like a boy a boy band of royal Japanese guys in leather go across middle America. That's interesting and very amusing. So, like, I totally got into at least watching that. But uh, the games themselves have, have just nev- never really been my cup of tea, but I, I'm I'm open to them. This in particular sounds really, really interesting. Um, because, yeah, a lot of games treat death as sort of like a binary thing that just is a thing that happens and then you get over it when it's it's like, no, man, death is fucks you up, dude. Like, somebody dies who's <laughs> close to you, you're going to be fucked up by it. Like probably for a really long time and it's gonna it's gonna happen in weird bursts and it's gonna happen in times it's gonna hit you at times you don't expect it and it's gonna hit you at times where you know you eat a food that that they made or something you know years later and and, you know everything everything that's weird and small about us that makes us human is going to affect us in in so many different ways and something that actually kind of respects that and and acknowledges that that sounds really fucking rad and and Maybe the coolest thing I've ever heard about a Final Fantasy game. Well, Danielle, if yeah. you like meditations on death, yes, I think the entire Final Fantasy series might be for you. Yeah, uh, but, but definitely like because because it sounds like FF10 like sort of follows this 
this thread, which sounds really fascinating. Like, I think I hadn't really realized what Yuna's ultimate fate was going to be. Like, everyone kept talking about sacrifice, but I, I don't think I realized that uh, where that story was headed. And if I recall correctly, like, Tidus is also um, kind of a marked man in in some mm. ways. But uh, Final Fantasy VIII um, is arguably <laughs> there are a lot of schools of thought that the entire game is about death and regret. Um, That's actually, pretty cool. Uh, so somebody was telling me about this uh, this past winter, and then ironically, we got a pitch uh, related to it at at Vice not long ago. But it was basically the Squall is Dead hypothesis. Yeah. Uh, which is that the entire game, so f- fairly early in the game, um, Squall gets like <laughs> nailed with a spell Ooh. and uh, appears to have been killed. And then without any real reference to how or why he's healed, the second act of the game begins with him waking up and he's fine. And stuff is different and weird and like relationships have changed kind of inexplicably, but you kind of roll with it. But there's a lot of hints throughout the game that like maybe what you're seeing isn't real. Um, Maybe this is about like someone making peace with their life and their choices uh, in the moment of their death. Um, I've always thought that Squall maybe didn't survive that game because at the very end, um, he also appears to sacrifice himself. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that he maybe actually isn't present in the final cutscene, uh, even though it's it's presented as if he is. Um, so, yeah, no, there's like... <laughs> there are a lot of points in that game where you start to think like, is this character really here or are we now dealing with the world as people wish it were, right? And I, so I, I think what becomes, and, and death looms over the, the second and third act of uh, Final Fantasy VIII because you did, like there's this entire other storyline um, about you know a group of soldiers who also kind of um, deal with some ghastly loss um, and and sort of how they move on from it, and so like in the end, like Final Fantasy VIII, which starts out as a uh, <laughs> a teen drama set in a bizarre military school, sure, uh, in the end turns into this like layered reflection on like love and loss. Um, yeah, so like I I don't know like I, to to a degree like I think you can argue a lot of these games are <laughs> are about death, sure. Um, and uh, and and redemption or lack thereof. So I, I I think I think the series might be, well, I think thematically the series might be up your alley. Uh, okay. But the problem is then you're still playing a Final Fantasy game. Like, sure. <laughs> I don't like the form that much, so I tend yeah. to struggle with it. But your your mileage may vary. Yeah. No, that that sounds fair. That sounds absolutely fair. I've I've been curious about 8 maybe more than any of the other games in this series. Yeah. Uh, because it kind of looked kind of fucking cool. Just just especially at the time, like it it looked cool. I didn't have a PlayStation. I had I had a Nintendo 64 yeah. and you know, I wasn't like a, Zel- a Nintendo fangirl or anything, but that was just what I had. Uh so I I you know, read Electronic Gaming Monthly, and I saw all the previews for it, and I was like, these teens look cool. I was a teen at the time, so, you know, that that was fine. Um, 
This was not like last year where I was like, these teens look cool. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it looks interesting. It, lo it looks really cool. And hearing that about it makes me very interested. And so one day, maybe, one day, I will have a, a, a special scout friend, scout, I don't know why I said scout, but whatever. I will have a friend guide me through. Oh, some, you some need, final you need someone to Sherpa you up yes, the mountain. Yes, a Sherpa, not a scout, a Sherpa yeah. uh, to help someone me Someone who can do all the hard work and provide the expertise. Exactly. And you will get the experience and the triumph. That's right. Love it. Uh, <laughs> besides that, like any other games that like you think have a really good treatment of, of death? Like, I mean, Can't You Argue Life is Strange is about oh, sort absolutely. of a relationship that's sort of left in an ellipse because of death. I, I remember at, at one point during that game, like turning to the camera so to speak and having a screed about death with dignity <laughs> like how much i support that initiative it was a it was a an initiative i did a bunch of work on when i was at the aclu it was a, a, a one of my friends and colleagues there was outside of this wasn't an aclu case but it was outside of that she also was a campaign manager for death with dignity here in massachusetts and so I, I had looked into a lot of the research and so on and so forth i won't go into the screed but i i got very passionate about it um but you know you can you can look at that entire game as like do you accept do you accept that that your your best friend slash girlfriend slash whatever she is 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 gonna die, or are you gonna be like fuck everything everybody else can die, I'm saving her because I love her. I mean that's yeah. that's how dramatic shit feels like when in it when it's somebody you love on the line right like. I, I know that people don't actually typically make decisions that are my loved one versus the town, uh, but it, it can feel, the weight of that, I think, can feel very emotionally realistic. Uh, if you're if you're facing, like, my loved one, I would do anything for them. I would go through anything for them. I would put anyone else through anything for them because that's what love does to you, right? It's, it's what you experience, it's what you feel. So, yeah, I think Life is Strange does... Uh, death quite well even even with the trappings of, of, of melodrama and magical realism and and so on and so forth i think it is pretty emotionally realistic i think um all right two, two games i want i want to bring up just that they're they're deaths that sort of stand out in my mind um something i really enjoyed and the series gets melodramatic as hell but <laughs> And it starts melodramatic as hell, but in the middle, it actually does something pretty cool. Um, I always enjoyed the Brothers in Arms series, which sure, is Gearbox's sure. World War II shooter series. Uh, it's also about like squad combat. Uh, it's it's pretty cool. Uh, I like it a lot. The first game is, is nifty, uh, but there's this moment where you know, in your stereotypical Hollywood squad, guy from New York, country boy, <laughs> all this stuff, uh, yeah. the nerd is taken off by two of the more popular guys. They, they go on like a recon and you go and do your mission. And at the end, you hear the nerd like screaming for you, like begging you to come help him. And so you go running. And the two major characters that he was with are killed. They, they, oh, they die. Shit. And you don't know how or why. But it's, it cuts to like the next day. Um, and the squad is sort of like standing out there in a rainstorm, and the guy, the the, the nerd, the nerdy guy, is sort of off by his, by himself, and nobody will go talk to him. And it's one of the few. <laughs> I think what I like about it is it's a case where it shows how sort of shitty and callous people can be, but 
also it's like understandable. Like there's these two characters talking. Yeah. You know, someone's asking, you know, should we go talk to him? Should we, you know, should we go comfort him? And another character says like, uh, yeah, and what are we going to say to him? Like, you know, congratulations. Thanks for getting our friends killed. <laughs> like, and it's it's such a brutal line, but there's also this part of you that's like he kind of did, like you know, if, and like you, you know, you don't know what went down, but you you kind of know that he fucked up. You don't know how, but you, you you're pretty sure he probably did get those guys killed. That's just the kind of person he is. And so it's just this awful like everyone's processing their grief and their anger and they're casting around for someone to blame. And in this case, there might actually be someone to blame. Um, and it's it's a rare case of like. A heated video game war story. Yeah. Where death is meaningless and brutal and doesn't lead to any like awakenings or realizations. It's just a fact and everyone just has to carry it and move on. And it's not resolved. It basically destroys the guy who was out on that patrol. Like later, he basically like throws his life away in a really corny way. By the way, like sure. it ends with him firing a forty-five caliber pistol uh, and screaming, "Come and take me!" Oh, at good. like a tiger tank, uh, which is not, <laughs> which is not that game's finest hour. It doesn't usually work out in your favor when you do that. I imagine, you know, not a military expert, but doesn't no, that doesn't no. sound like a good move? Yeah. Yeah, it only ever really worked out for Tom Hanks in uh in Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, yeah. But uh so that that was one. The other thing I really like is um the original The Darkness. Uh Oh, which, sure. You know, again, like your girlfriend's death is probably her fault. Like you're definitely sort of made a witness to it and it's basically just to like torture you and spite you. Uh and then the rest of the game you're kind of trying to like get her back and settle the score, but in the end you can't. Like it happened. And you just have to accept it and move on. And the thing I really dig is in the, in the second game, your character is kind of not really recovered. Like, he doesn't really have any more close relationships. Not really. He's still got family that he's close with. But, like, you know, whatever, that, that, that ability to be vulnerable with someone is, is kind of no longer part of his makeup. Yeah. It's, it, it died with her. And I, I've always kind of dug how that series both handled grief and acceptance but also you know some of the ways that people end up coping with it uh that you know maybe aren't so pretty yeah god damn that was an awesome game yeah yeah it, man og Starbreeze. Uh, yeah seriously Just the best seriously god damn so right, uh we should uh yeah, I was gonna say. Uh, speaking of speaking of OG, maybe maybe speaking of OG, mm. let's let's go into our weekend projects. What are you watching and reading and listening to? What's what's setting your world on fire right now, Rob? Oh man! Uh, so right now, um, I am diving back into Owen Steinhauer's uh, mysteries. Oh, uh, and I think the first of his mysteries was uh, maybe The Bridge of Sighs or maybe 36 Yalta Boulevard. But So Steinhauer writes these um, police procedurals set in an unnamed Eastern East Bloc country in the 50s and 60s. And they're just really, really good. Like, it's, it's almost like what if it was like Homicide Life on the Street or NYPD Blue, except one of the characters is probably like a secret, like KGB agent. Oh, shit. Um, and everyone's like 
Slavic as hell and tragic <laughs> and like <laughs> yeah <laughs> that sounds like but you know what I mean it, it, like everyone is so carrying the weight of like Slavic history on their shoulders right yeah. like yeah. all the you know the oppression the bloodshed the tragedy of the most recent war the fact that like you know you're socialist but at the same time you're also undeniably living under like the thumb of the Soviet Union um, and the other cool thing is the main character like changes novel by novel. Like you get really attached to one character, but then the next book, he's a minor character, a background character, and now it's about somebody else in that unit. Um, That's really cool. Yeah, it it's is. like really, really rad. Yeah, and it it ends up like complicating the picture of so many of these like otherwise stock characters, um, and you know they're they're not really. They're not like whodunit mysteries, right? Like they're procedurals. It's like it's about it's it's really more about like, you know, the negotiation that's required uh, living under an authoritarian system, like just the day to day way that those negotiations and those bargains and those choices are baked into the fabric of your life. And right now, the one I'm reading is uh, called The Confession, and it covers one of my favorite characters uh, in the series, uh, Brano Sev, uh, who is absolutely at the start introduced as your really scary, distant, um, like, commissar-type character. Huh, like, yeah. he's absolutely working for the, the state police. Uh, he's sort of baked into this unit, both to see where cases touch on the interests of the state, but also to sort of keep an eye on his fellow officers. Um, and so he starts out as basically like just this completely menacing true believer. But there's a few hints that there's like a little bit more to him than meets the eye. And so this is finally like his book uh, that I'm getting into. I'm really excited about it. Highly oh, recommend man. these things. Oh, I need to jump in. That's oh, that sounds so good. Um. I believe I talked about Logan last week, and uh, I'm still feeling Logan, but Rob, this yeah. is really exciting. This is really exciting. Okay. The Americans came back. I know. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Okay. I have to finish season four. Oh, shit, really? Do you remember, Danielle, do you remember... When, yeah. when Gabriel, like, is trying to get them to do the mission, and they're like, we're too fucked up to do the mission. And he's like, you have to do the mission. And yeah. the next thing we basically see is, um, oh, God, uh, what are their two names? <laughs> forget their names. It's oh, Elizabeth. Elizabeth and Philip. Philip. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the next thing we basically see is Elizabeth coming back into Gabriel's apartment, like, covered in her friend's blood. Yeah. And Gabriel's like, okay, you know what? You guys get a vacation. Yeah. And at that point, I was like, you know what? I get a vacation too, Gabriel. <laughs> and didn't watch the rest of the season. Oh, my God. I know. I know. I know. Oh, shit. So I just started so watching much it. Happens. I just started watching it. Like, Pastor Tim, all this good shit. Oh, but like, shit. Yeah. So I'm behind. So I'm like, I'm now forced. I have no choice but to crash catch up on the Americans. Oh, God. Uh, and already, like, things are happening. Oh, like, yes. Agent Gad goes off in his retirement, and that doesn't go well for anyone. Nope. Um, so, yeah, I am. Uh, <laughs> I have now been left with no choice but to plunge for, like, now almost, like, 20 episodes, I guess, if I, if I chain these two seasons together yeah. of just the unrelenting despair um, and 
<laughs> again, harsh, uh, harsh Eastern European reality uh, oh, of the Americans. But how does uh, how's how's season five starting off? Oh God! Well, I can't. Uh, okay, it's a little hard to talk about without knowing how season four ends and uh, sort of the the plot points because it really is a very direct oh, continuation. God, I failed you. In I a lot of ways. You. It's a very direct continuation. Uh, the first episode, it's only the first episode that's out so far. And I, I will just say this. I think it starts a little slower than usual, which honestly is not a problem for me when it comes to the Americans. Because everything is of such a high quality, such a such a craftsmanship of every element of filmmaking in this show that, like, they could be fucking sitting there talking about uh, the texture of oranges. And I'd be like, wow. Look at how beautifully shot this was. Yes. There's so much symbolism here. Are they really talking about oranges or are they talking about their feelings? What what is going on here? You know, I would be ecstatic. Um and it ends on a holy fuckaroo. Oh god. It's Oh, it's so intense, Rob. It's like the most intense show ever. Although the expanse is getting to that point. Not not the yeah. Americans. Not the Americans point, but intensity speaking. Holy yeah. shit snacks. Yeah, the expanse. Jared Harris uh, is back on the show this week after not seeing him for a while, and he is just so fucking good. Like, not many oh, people yeah. can actually make the dangerously compelling uh, and charismatic leader actually like charismatic. Um, yes, but he absolutely can. Like, or at least not charismatic in a way that like people would believably follow them. Like, a lot of people do the charisma thing, but it's like clearly like an unhinged villain charisma. Yeah, he's actually like, oh, I know he's dangerous, but I can also totally see why everyone buys what he is selling. He actually gives a shit. Like, you can kind of tell he gives a shit, whether it's for yeah. you know whatever necessarily how he got there. We don't know necessarily, but yes. Holy shit. Well, I'll just say the Americans episode, uh, episode one of season five and uh, the Expanse most recent episode end on a similarly holy fuck note. Whew. All right. I am losing this room. So let's let's, All right. let's hit our outro. You know what? I'll just GTFO. end there. That's what it is. It's on a holy fuck note. And on that note, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Ivan Weekend was produced by yours truly. Is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. Tell your friends. For Rob Zachney, this is Daniel Riendo. <laughs> wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Also, if you want to rate us on iTunes, that would be really amazing, too. We really appreciate it. We love you. And uh, I'll say that again. Wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Mm-hmm.